It's coming up for 10 years since Catherine Simpson's sister, Tricia, took her own life. In the aftermath of Tricia's death, Catherine, who's a journalist and writer, went on something of a quest, picking through Tricia's diaries to try and get a better understanding of who her sister was and why she decided to take her life. The resulting book, called When I Had a Little Sister, is beautifully crafted, hugely thought-provoking, at times very funny, and of course desperately sad. Most of all, it's profoundly honest. And I'm talking to Catherine for this episode of Speaking of Suicide. Just before we get underway, remember, it's okay not to be okay. And if listening to this means you need to have some support, I'll be giving out the details for Mikey's line a bit later. And remember, you can always press pause if the conversation gets too much. Catherine, there is so much I want to talk to you about, having um, read your book. But perhaps we can start with that 10-year anniversary of Trisha's death. What does time do to grief, this grief? Where have you settled, or have you settled with the knowledge of, of Trisha's death? That's a really good question. I was just thinking about that when I, I hadn't realised it was 10 years almost. And it seems like yesterday, um, I feel that it's a long, long journey which goes in a flash. But Trisha still seems like she's here with me. I, I think some of the very hard times have begun to recede a little bit. I thought I would never be able to write about Trisha because it was just too big a subject and too hard. And where would I start? You know, um, it, it was an absolute catastrophe losing her in the way that we did. And I thought I would never come to any kind of terms with it. So. Two years afterwards, when I did start to write the book, that was quite a big step forward. And then I spent a whole year reading her diaries, going back over photograph albums, asking people things, going back to places to try to, um, you know, to try to find out what on earth happened uh, in our family for that disaster to occur. And that, that year, it was like spending a year with her. And particularly because I had her diaries, right from the age of 14 to the, age, to the day she died, actually. Not every day, but there were entries. And every time she mentioned, for instance, every time she mentioned um, a piece of music, I would play that music. And it was like we were having a conversation. So it was like I was spending time with her. And that itself was really, really healing, I think, the actual writing of the book. So when I'd finished the manuscript and I had to send it to my editor, that was really hard because it was almost like another ending. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been all through the diaries, I'd learned as much as I could, and, um, and now I was handing her over to somebody else. So that was really, really hard. So that was three years after she died when I got to that stage. And then, of course, since then I've been speaking about her a lot. I've been talking about the book. So in a way... It's almost been like a joint project with Tricia to try to destigmatize mental ill health, to try and talk about suicide, to talk about bipolar, which is what she had. She had a diagnosis of bipolar, which she didn't get until almost the end of her life. And so just having this is um, having being able to write the book and to um, help other people which I, I believe it has done in certain instances people have got in touch and said I'm so glad you've written this you've written my story I've never seen 
read a book about sibling suicide before, that sort of thing. So that's the kind of thing that makes me feel that I'm hopefully, that me and Trisha together are sort of hopefully doing something positive with a terrible thing that happened to us. So this is a very long answer to your question about the, uh, the 10 years. It's been a busy 10 years and um, in that, you know, here I am still talking about her and how she left us and um, and it seems like, you know, it seems like she's still here with me, you know, but um, the shock of, of something like that happening, I don't, I think you can always put yourself back into that moment when you're here and you realise what's happened and you sort of think nothing will ever be the same from that second on um, and it isn't. So, can we then scroll back a bit to, to ten years ago um, and, and touch on the circumstances of, of uh, Trisha's death? How did you learn about it? Oh, gosh. Um, I was out Christmas shopping and um, my mobile rang. And I, and I don't like my mobile ringing because I associate it with disaster. Um, anyway, I, I, I answered it and I got this garbled... My, sister, my, my big sister was on the line with this garbled sort of message about, I think something's happened to Trisha, I think something's happened to Trisha. Um, and it was a bit like a Chinese whispers had gone on that um, my father, who was 89 at the time, had discovered her body in the farmhouse where we were all born, including my father. And the um, air ambulance and the police had arrived, but they there was no the phone wasn't working and her mobile had no charge in it and so they were trying to get the message out to my big sister and then she got cut off and then the paramedics weren't allowed to say it it had to be my father and he couldn't it was all horrible so this kind of garbled message came out that something disastrous had happened and so i was kind of left not really knowing what had happened so and i remember saying to my husband at the time I hope that this is some hideous mistake and that Trish is okay, or if not, I hope that she's gone. Because what I couldn't bear was the thought of her having done something and be left in an even worse, if I can put it that way, in an even worse state than she had been because she had been in such emotional pain for so long by that stage that it was like we were watching a slow unfolding of a catastrophe and were helpless to stop it in a way. And, and I couldn't bear the thought of her, I don't know, being in some hospital bed forever or something. I, I, anyway, so then we had to wait for my, sister, my big sister to get there so that she could then report back as to exactly what was happening. And then the, the bad news was confirmed that um, Trisha was dead. And, um, and then a whole new life started for us all. The, our family life's changed because up until that point Trisha's illness had played quite a big role I think in the family life because she was very depressed very often and we none of us really knew how to help she didn't get the diagnosis of bipolar until quite late on so we didn't really know what the problem was and sometimes we were guilty of judging her so we would, for instance, um, describe her as being in a bad mood, you know, rather than seriously mentally ill. 
So we'd go down, because I live in Scotland, so I would travel down to Lancashire to see my father and my sister, my little sister Tricia, lived in the house next door. Sometimes I would go down for the weekend to see my father and I would never even see her. She wouldn't come out of a house, she wouldn't come and join in with the meals. And we were kind of, we'd get quite frustrated, maybe even angry about it. One day I remember going down to the farmhouse where Tricia lived and hammering on the door thinking, you will come out of that house, you will come and join us. So there was a complete lack of understanding there from us. But to excuse that a bit, I will say we didn't, we didn't have a proper diagnosis and we were ignorant, largely. But even if, um, even if you'd had that diagnosis, I still think, I don't know if it's a family thing, but I still think it's actually quite difficult not to, at times, rage at what from the outside looks like selfishness. It's like, can't you see how your behaviour is impacting on all the rest of us? We've come all this way, you're in there, you know, you're ruining you're ruining the weekend. You're ruining this, ruining that. And, and that's just, I think, having been in similar circumstances, I think it's just kind of human nature that you're... And, and I don't know if it's a familial thing that means that we're more prepared to go, oh, than we would at a, a friend or colleague, whether it's that thing of having grown up yeah, um, and I suppose we're people. also seeing how a sibling's actions or behaviour impact on our parents as well. And we're trying to protect our parents. But yes, definitely, I mean, you do... There was a lot of blame going on. and um, But I, I didn't explain it to my young children at the time because, well, I thought I was explaining it, but they obviously completely got hold of the wrong end of the stick because they would say, where's Auntie Tricia? And I would say, oh, Auntie Tricia's not well. And they thought she had a cold. And they were going, oh, Auntie Tricia's got another cold. But I didn't know that until after she died, that they thought it was some physical thing that she had. Um, I think I just thought I was, that that was a sufficient explanation. Oh, she's not well, but it clearly wasn't. Um, I want to come on and talk about the kind of... I mean, that, that sort of brings me on to, to a theme that, that is, comes out very strongly in the book, which is about the sort of lack of talking about um, things, uh, uh, something of um, silence in, in the world that you grew up with. Um, so in many respects, it doesn't surprise me that you couldn't maybe find the words to describe what was going on, because using words around, you know, and speaking about these things seems to have not been part of, of your landscape. Can, you, can we touch on that? Because I think it's really interesting and important. What form did silence take in, in your background and why do you think it was significant? Yeah, silence, I, I, it was smothering really. Um, I mean, I think it was partly the time in which we're living. And I was born in the 60s and brought up in the 70s. So it was the time. It was also the place in that it was Lancashire, it was the farming community. Um, people didn't talk about their feelings. They just didn't talk about their feelings. I mean, the only emotion you were really allowed to express was anger. And there was quite a lot of anger, particularly from my mother, really. Um, other than that, people didn't have emotions. And the, so conversation, as, as, such as, as such as it was, was about what was happening on the farm, it was about the animals, it was about the weather. There was this sort of commentary going on. But nobody would have ever asked you 
how are you feeling, how are you, how do you feel about that? If something bad, good or indifferent happened to you, it just wasn't a question. So we never had the words really to express it. And I think I would have thought at that time so that it was very self-indulgent. I suppose that was the effect of that. I got the impression that it was very self-indulgent to want to talk about yourself and your feelings. Um, so it was a complete no-no, really. Um, which meant, of course, that we were completely unprepared for something as disastrous as severe mental ill health. So, you know, this, this uh, Trisha's illness really had been going on ever since she was a teenager. She didn't die until she was, I think, 46. Uh, that's a long time to be severely ill on a, you know, she wasn't severely ill all the time. There were, there were times of, you know, good, there were good times as well. But that's a long time to be suffering without being able to speak to your family about it. And did you talk about it within the family? No, no, it was just terrible. I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous when I, when I say that now. We never talked about it because we would say things like, oh, how's Tricia? Oh, she's not so bad. And that was it. That was it. Um, I think my mother had also been depressed for quite a lot of her life and that had never been discussed. That was always, she was tired. Um, and she would go, I'm going for a lie down. And the, they sounded like words of doom. I'm going for a lie down. And it basically meant that she couldn't face any more of, you know, she couldn't face us. <laughs> um, so, that, so I think that, that lack of language and that lack of ability to talk about difficult things makes you feel really helpless. And um, it really leaves you on shaky ground, you know, because you, you're just not equipped to deal with anything. We had good, some good, good times. We were quite good at... Um, you know, having a nice Christmas day, for instance, or something like that, as long as everybody was well. But the minute that things weren't going well, we were wholly unequipped to deal with it. You said at one point in the, the book, uh, uh, something really jumped out at me, you said family anecdotes were held like state secrets. <laughs> that was my mother. It was sort of a, a power thing with my mum. I think that, um, again, she wouldn't talk about things. So it wasn't just difficult things she wouldn't talk about. In fact, she wouldn't share things. So, uh, you know, you'd be, you'd be asking questions about, you know, family, you know, generations back or even one generation back. And, oh, what do you want to know that for? What do you want to know that for? And uh, there had been a little bit of scandal two generations back. And uh, I remember that lady. I remember that lady. I'm not talking about it. Implying, you know, it's not, it's not the done thing to talk about scandal. I guess what it also means is you don't get to know if there was a history of mental health <laughs> Absolutely, problems. No. You, Absolutely, no. You, you don't get to know the, the characters that, that inhabit your... Your ancestry, your past. Absolutely, no. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right because when other people say in the village um, became ill, they were talked. They were talked of as um, being a bit bad with their nerves, in an undertone. You know, they were a bit bad with their nerves. Um, but there was never any, you know, there was never any investigation of that or a proper discussion. So no, you're absolutely right that uh, they could work very well. In fact, um, an aunt of mine, a great aunt of mine had committed suicide. Well, I, won't, I don't say committed suicide, I say die by suicide. I'll slip into the old lingo sometimes. A great aunt of mine had died by suicide. Um, and it was talked of, well, it wasn't really talked of, it was, talked, it was mentioned at the time. It was never really discussed. 
but it was it was sort of referred to as something a bit shameful um, you know something that um, not something it wasn't really something that was spoken of with any understanding or sympathy it was spoken of as yeah sort of kind of how could she let the side down a bit not, those words weren't used but it was a bit like that you know what on earth could be so bad that somebody would do that to us and it, it's just occurred to me there that of course when you're living in 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 a world of silence where there's just the odd phrase or the odd bit of um something alluded to then then you can kind of end up inferring all kinds of stuff and and nothing's very clear nothing's clear that no nothing's clear at all which yeah you could get a hold of completely the wrong end of the stick and um uh, misunderstand everything it, it's so unhelpful I mean I, I've tried to go the exact opposite way with with my children having said that there was me saying oh, Trish, Auntie Trish is not well thinking that they kind of had some understanding of what I was saying and of course they didn't because they were too young so I have tried to as, they, as they've got older my, my girls are now 27 and 24 I, we've tried to be open and have the language there and the family unit that allows communication on anything and that in itself has brought problems you know because whereas my parents could brush things under the carpet didn't have to face things uh, could pretend that things were okay we can't do that and then we're left because my, my elder daughter does have um, mental ill health and has been suicidal so we are left trying to say the right words and actually that is very difficult because in theory I know that it's not a good idea to start offering advice particularly unasked for advice I know that and yet because I feel I'm expected to say something I end up doing it and I know it's not the right thing to try to fix somebody and to say this is the solution to your problems there might not be a solution. But I'm, I don't seem to have learnt the lessons. So I think really, it's not just being able to talk, it's being able to listen. This is the most important thing. It's to, it's to show the person, I am here, I will always be here, I love you, whatever, and tell me, and I will, I will listen to you. But that, it's so hard not to try to come up with solutions and then of course the solutions don't work and then there, there's a lot of frustration you've been gaslighting me you told me i'd get better you told me that was was only just a uh, you know you told me that that would soon pass and it hasn't passed so there are <laughs> so, so even if we know even if we know someone is 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 struggling and we know the detail of it 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 doesn't necessarily make it an easier ride it's just a different it's one. It's just a different one. It's a different yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, because I always thought, having written the book, uh, and I always thought if only we'd been able to talk, if only we'd been able to talk, we could have maybe got more help, we could have um, helped her understand herself, we would have been more patient, etc., etc. But of course I'm now in, another, uh, in a position where my daughter's suffering, and we have got her all the help. She has had the meds, she's come off them all now, but she has had all the meds. She has had psychiatric help. She has 
she's had every bit of help that we can possibly give her. But that doesn't magically solve um, all problems. Sometimes problems are problems and you have to live with them. And it's finding that way to be supportive without looking as though you're trying to gaslight them. Oh, it's all right. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. There's no point in saying that, but I still keep doing it. I've been doing it today. <laughs> it's so frustrating. Now, in, as we said, in the aftermath of um, Trisha's death, you ended up gathering up her, her diaries. And I called it, I described it as kind of going on a quest. It I did feel, it, did, honestly, it did feel a bit that way. Yes, it did feel that. It sounds a bit dramatic. To but understand it, her. To, it to did, to yeah, her. it was. It was, it was um, it, I was trying to unpick all those years because, of course, I remembered them because I'm three years older than Tricia, so I remembered all those years. But seeing them from somebody else's perspective was really fascinating. You, to quote you in your book again, you, you asked kind of how well we can ever know anyone. And, of course, in a land of silence, you probably know people even less. So... How surprising was it to then start stepping into a world, which I think you initially did by having to go through the house and, mm. and, and you know, discover, I guess, how she was living and, mm. and pockets of surprise there. But then it went on to the diaries. But was it filled with a lot of unknowns? Well, I was really frightened of the diaries. I said I would never read them. My, sister, my big sister took them away for two years because I thought that they would be full of um, anger against us and I thought that they would be full of black despair and I, I didn't think I could read that. So it was actually an amazingly good surprise to read the diaries and find that they were actually they had joyful times in them and, and there was no blame attached to me, which I know is incredibly a, a very me, 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 selfish way of looking at it, but actually to find affectionate things written about me really made a big difference because when somebody that you're so close to takes their own life, you obviously feel guilt and you feel blame and you think, you know, there must be some blame attached to me and my behaviour. So to read Trisha's words in her handwriting saying that she'd appreciated things that I'd done or that she'd enjoyed my company or that, you know, she'd like sharing things. It really, really meant a lot. Um, and I actually found a note in the diaries that she'd written years before. It was actually a suicide note that she'd written as a teenager which had been shoved in there. So obviously thoughts of taking her own life had been in her mind for on and off for a long time. And in this note, she actually, you know, she, she said, you've always... You've always looked after me. You've always cared for me. To me, she said that. And that meant so much to me. And I was telling somebody about it, because I was on a writing retreat at the time when I found that. And they said, yes, but she wrote that years ago. And I said, I don't, it doesn't matter. It's come to me today. It's come to me out of the ether today in her handwriting. And it felt like a, such a gift. It's a, it's a diversion, but I'll, I'll share it with you because it, it really struck me there. Someone we've had a get as a guest on the um, on the series, speaking of suicide, Basti Morrison, who talked about his mother's suicide when uh, he was only a young boy, five. Um, I, uh, in the aftermath of having done the, the the podcast with us and us talking about it, um, a picture of a note was sent to him from a family member, which was pinned inside his wardrobe from when his mother took her life saying how much she loved him. 
and he'd oh. never known about it. Oh, my. And he said to see that written in her hand... In her handwriting, yeah. ..and pinned in his wardrobe, there was one in his and one in his sister's, was, wow. was a massive thing. So it I think be. that, that, you know, and he's now 50. So it didn't matter that 45 years had passed no, since that note was written. Not. That that voice from back then, it, it still carries so much. Absolutely, absolutely, doesn't it? And you're right about it. seeing the handwriting is like hearing the voice, isn't it? Um, so yeah, so um, so yeah, you see, it was a kind, of, it was a quest to um, to try to unpick and understand, and and it was a quest that. I thought would take me to some very dark places, and it, it did. But actually, I was already in a dark place. You know, I was in a dark place. My sister had died in these terrible circumstances, so actually, reading the more joyful things to help me to start clamber out, clamber out of that really, really dark place. And it, it was a much more positive experience to read than I, than I feared. Was it in some way? I mean, curious that, as we, as we've said, you you grew up with a lot of things unsaid, to suddenly have access to all these words and feelings and, you know, an outpouring. Was that, I mean, that's, that's a, you know. It's quite amazing. It's quite amazing. I didn't start writing until I was 45 because um, I always wanted to be a writer. When I was a child, I was always interviewing people and writing little stories and making my own newspapers and all this sort of thing. But that was ridiculous. I didn't know any writers. Who, who, there's only any Blyton. You know, who else was a writer? Nobody else was a writer, apparently. Um, so eventually, when I was in my 20s, I went to train to be a journalist because that seemed like a more reasonable way of using words to make a living. And that was great. And I did that for some time. And then one day when I was 45, and by, by the time I was 45, I decided that this long-held dream of being a writer was kind of embarrassing and thank goodness I had never really told too many people in the last 10 years <laughs> but I had a school friend who, who I've known since I was in my early teens and every time I saw her, she was going well how's that but are you writing that book yet and I think oh please don't keep mentioning it. it's embarrassing um so when I was 45 I decided well you know maybe maybe I should go and actually find out whether I can write so I signed up for the Open University and it was wonderful a wonderful experience and I realised how much I enjoyed being able to put things down in words because I could pin things down and I could actually form a thought and then develop the thought with words. It was just wonderful. So I did that for two years and then I realised, oh, I've still got a lot to learn. So I went to do an MA in creative writing at Napier University. And by that stage, I was completely bitten by the bug, you know, this, this whole thing. The, whole, the millions of words out there and how, how nuanced you can make a thought by, <laughs> by using a different word, you know. It was, it was an amazing ex experience to discover this sort of skill, really, you know, late on, quite late on. So I was, anyway, so 45 when I went to learn to write and uh, 50 when I got an agent, 51 when I had a novel published and then since then two memoirs. So um, it's been quite late but I think that has made me appreciate it all the more and the novel uh, not novelty is not the right word but the joy the joy of being able to use words to chase down my thoughts and feelings and really nail them down that joy will never dis will never disappear and to chase down Tricia and, and your family background absolutely absolutely I 
I always, I realised when I first started writing and I was writing little tiny little bits, that it was always the bits about my family that people were particularly interested in. Um, I mean, my first book was a novel, but it was inspired by raising my autistic daughter, but that is a novel. But it was always things, because I think everybody thinks their family's, you know, kind of normal. It's only, maybe they don't, but, uh, but it's only when you actually start writing about them. And, you know, I had, I had a granddad who lived in the, out shed, in the shed outside and, you know, all, all these sort of eccentric, quirky people in the family. And the farming background itself is quite unusual because although I was born, in, born into a big family, everybody had a farm. We all lived quite close together. I thought everybody lived on a farm until I was about five. And you suddenly realise, actually, no, that's not really normal for a lot of people to be living in the way that we were living or being brought up in that way. And in fact, that lifestyle is largely disappearing now anyway. So to be able to put that into words, I think has been amazing. And, and has made me appreciate it's made me appreciate my family as well because, you know, people they, people have had difficult lives, and yet they've you know they've they've lived them as best they could, um, and um, with with humour often. How much has walking back through time, through your childhood, with the help of of Trisha's diaries, but also with, obviously with your own memories? Has walking back through it helped you understand bits of it? Has it changed it? Has it pinned it down in a different way? Yeah, it, it has. I, I felt very, very guilty as a child and I didn't really know why. I didn't, I didn't, there, was this, there was this big burden of unexpressed guilt which I now realise, and I didn't realise any of this until I started writing. You have these penny-dropping moments when you're writing, where, you know, things, you think, ah, right. And I realise that my mother was, was depressed, which was never, like I say, never, never expressed, and that she, that she uh, was living the wrong life. She shouldn't be, she was a farmer's daughter, but actually she shouldn't have been a farmer's wife. And she didn't ever talk about that, of course, but she expressed it in sound. So she would be bashing pots around, slamming doors, big he heaving sighs. You know, all this stuff was going on, which I wasn't analysing, but I was absorbing at the time. And I knew that I'd done something wrong. What I'd done wrong, of course, was being born. <laughs> But I kind of didn't realise that until I started writing about it. I thought, oh, that's the guilt I've been carrying around. That I, by being born, I made my mother unhappy. Although on her deathbed, she said, without you three girls, my life would have been nothing. So she had this moment of realisation on her deathbed, I think. Because she, I think she'd wanted sons for a start. I mean, you know, she, she was a farmer's wife. But um, So yeah, you start to, you start to realise why you felt a certain way and then why somebody else reacted in a certain way. It kind of makes you feel more compassion for them and more compassion for yourself. It's very easy to judge people until you start trying to really work out, you know, why they did what they did and, uh, and then you think, ah, oh, right, okay, there was, a, there was a reason for that. Yeah, so, yeah, I feel a lot more compassion for, for, for myself and for everybody else now I'm writing. Very difficult to say, but does that comp I mean, or, or, or to pick it apart? But does that compassion mean that if you'd been able to step back in time, 
you'd have behaved differently in some ways. It's very hard because when you think about stepping back in time, you're of course stepping back into a child's shoes and you just don't have the wherewithal. You don't have the wherewithal. I think, I can't remember who it was, it was a famous writer who said, if you've survived your childhood, you've got enough to write about for the rest of your life. Because we've all got to, we've all got to survive our childhoods and we've all got to, you know, as, as, and I mean, you know, as good as your childhood is, there'll be something that needs unpicking back then. Um, and so, you know, if I step back in time, I'm not sure I, I personally could have done anything differently because, but I would, yes, I would have started writing sooner. That's what I would have done. I would have started writing as soon as I left home at 19. I wished I'd done that. Because writing is a way of exploring. And expressing. And expressing. And, and, and expressing stuff that obviously you weren't expressing, all of you. Absolutely. Um, as a, as a you child. Yeah, and you don't need to show anybody. You know, I wouldn't, maybe I started publishing, but I would definitely have started writing. What would your mum have made? <laughs> you grimacing. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't have, I could have written when my mother was alive, but I couldn't have published when my mother was alive. Definitely not. Um, my mother died, my mother died just before I started writing, and I didn't realise at the time that that was connected. It clearly was, because there is absolutely no way that I could have said the things that I've said. Um, no, it just wouldn't have happened. So, um, so yeah, I wish I'd been writing earlier, but there's no way I could have published if my mother had been alive. And that does show a great sense of compassion, because you're obviously aware that it would have undone her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I would, but it would have left me with a huge, that, that burden of guilt I was talking about, I, I would, it would have been impossible to carry it, it would have been so heavy. You know, I, could, I just couldn't have done that. I mean, my father was still alive. My father only died recently. Uh, he never read the book about Trishery. He was very supportive and he helped me with some research um, and finding photographs and all that sort of thing, but he, he didn't want to read it, uh, which is fair enough. The ironic, sorry, the ironic thing is, just going back to my mother, she, I thought I was writing a book about Trisha. But then I realised I was actually writing a book about my mum. And how my mum really had impacted the whole family. She was a very powerful, very strong personality. Overpowering might be the term. She's a very strong personality. And so she had a big, big impact on us and I realised that she is one of the she's central character, one of the central characters in the book. Um, but ironically she took the photograph for the cover, which is um, a picture of me and Trisha when we young girls in the farmyard and I'm crying over a dead duck. And I have no idea why my mother took that photograph. She only ever took about 20 photographs in her life. So why she took one of me crying over a dead duck in the, in the yard when I was about seven years old, I've got no idea, but it made the perfect cover for the book. Has the writing and revisiting all this released you from some of that guilt and, and some of the sense of failure that you also talk about in, in the book? Yes, yes, I think it has. I, I, um, I, I regret, I've, I've got lots of regrets, lots of regret that it, that it ended up the way it did, obviously. But having picked it all apart, I'm not quite sure at what stage 
we could have made things different. That's the thing. You know, maybe if we'd been a different family in a different time, you know, where and psychiatry had been different, because of course there was no, there wasn't the antidepressants that we know of now, back in this 70s, 80s anyway. There just wasn't that understanding of mental ill health. So, yes, I think it made me, th made me sort of think, in our own way, we did our best in that we stuck together as a family. We tried to involve Trisha in family life. Um, you know, we wanted her to be an active auntie and, and we got the kids to send her notes and all that sort of thing. I'm really glad we did that. I wish we'd done more of that. I wished I'd done more sending letters, sending cards, little gifts, things that didn't require an immediate response. I used to phone her, my dad used to say, oh, phone Trisha, phone Trisha, and my heart used to sink because I didn't know if I was going to get her in a mood where she, where she couldn't really speak. And then that was terribly depressing for me. I mean, I know that sounds horribly selfish. Um, and then she would probably end up frustrated that I was on the phone disturbing her when she didn't really want to be speaking to somebody. So I, I wished I'd done more of the um, sending her bits of music, say, that she might enjoy just doing things that she could receive and when she felt able to and then could respond when, if and when she wanted to. I wish they'd done more of that. Everyone I've talked to for this series, um, the, 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 the biggest question, of course, about any suicide is, is that, why, why, why? Did you come any closer to feeling you'd resolved a bit of that why yeah I did actually I did I um, there were two things that that came together I think she got the diagnosis of bipolar and she'd been on all the medications and they swapped and changed the medications time and time again and yet she obviously didn't feel any better so there was the the, the I think this she I think she had come to I think she had decided I am never going to be free, I'm never going to be well and at the same time, she decided that she'd become a burden to her family. And when those two things had gelled, I'm never going to get better. I'm going to be a burden to my family. And then, of course, my father was 89 and she was quite dependent on him because she'd had a driving licence taken off her. And they lived in the middle of the countryside, so my father used to go and get her food. So, and so she's looking into a future where my father might not have been there. I think they all came together and maybe maybe it was a long thought out thing or maybe it was a, a that night thing. Maybe if she'd survived that night, maybe maybe it wouldn't have happened or it would have happened at a different time. It's hard to say. But I kind I kind of came to understand where she was, what she was thinking. That, um, and who am I to say that that was the wrong thing to do? I mean, it's, you know, if, 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 you, if you're struggling every day, sometimes to get out of bed, to get out of the house, and you're on your own, and you, all you can see is um, more, more of that, uh, I'm really, really, really sorry that that is the decision that she came to, but I don't judge her for it. To me, on reading the book, yes, there's, I mean, it's, it's hugely honest. And yes, there's pockets of frustration and maybe, maybe some anger at, at, at bits mm -hmm. and pieces. And some of it, you know, directed towards Trisha and her behaviour. 
but certainly the book for me is also full of, of deep, deep affection and, and grief. It's certainly, mm. I mean, it, it was a relation of, relationship that was very close. I, uh, in a way, it's a love letter to Tricia, this book. Um, I, I did love her. I, I always knew that I loved her. There was never any... I was never uncertain about that, but I never, ever told her because that wasn't... Those weren't words that were available to me. And I think the first time that I ever used the word love about Tricia is in this book. Uh, but I did love her. And, um, I'm, you know, this is a loving uh, tribute and a m- memorial to her. Um... And I hope that's how it's, you know, I hope that's how it comes across because that's what it is. It is a love letter to my sister. Catherine, to say I, um, I enjoyed reading when I had a little sister seems to be uh, the kind of wrong word to, to People never like for. to say they've enjoyed it and then I can see them, they say, oh, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. But I did enjoy reading it very much. <laughs> And I, I found it immensely moving. Um, I think you write beautifully. I'm Thank very you. glad you picked up the typewriter or the keyboard or whatever it was the eventually. <laughs> Your pencil. Um, and I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to me for speaking of, speaking well, of suicide. I appreciate you asking me. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine Simpson. Listening to that alongside is Shona McPherson from Mikey's Line. Shona. Where did that conversation take you? Mm. Yeah, just listening to Catherine, I was really reminded of our earlier interview with Victoria Noom. Mm. Um, Both women using the power of the written word to process and to make meaning about losing a sibling. And Victoria had lost her brother just a few months before recording the episode, whereas Catherine had lost Trish nearly 10 years ago. Um, so I guess that the similarities and the differences, um, and I was struck just by how beautifully Catherine spoke about that precious time she spent getting to know Trish anew um, through reading her diaries, and how in a, in a family where not that many words were spoken, and not that much permission was given to, to, to speak and express emotions, how both sisters, Catherine and Trish were drawn to writing words down and I was drawn to how despite Trish not being alive in her body anymore that Catherine was able to spend time with her in this way um, through reading her diaries, through writing about her, through listening to the music that that she'd mentioned um, and through speaking of her and how through this kind of process she seemed to grow in empathy and to grow in understanding about her sister's mental health struggles. And I suppose that, like reflecting on that, it's sort of aware of what's possible for us as we grieve. Right now it might feel really dark and that that isn't available to you as you're um, possibly processing grief. But through time there can be new revelations, new insights. Um, I also really appreciated uh, Catherine's honesty about her guilt and that she allowed this... Sorry, yeah, her honesty about her guilt and that she allowed this guilt to move through her. Um, And then it seemed like it did move through her and there was more space for other emotions like love and compassion and not even just love and compassion to Trish but to her mother and to herself. And 
she mentions another relative dying by suicide. Mm. And I, I believe there's a real power in speaking and in sharing and in breaking a silence in generations where we haven't spoken about things. And if this language connects, maybe we could even think about letting go of generational burdens, of bringing change. And so finally, my core message that I want to leave is if you've lost someone to suicide, writing down might be useful for you, um, or reading old diaries if they've kept them, going through old photographs, being with memories. Um, but it might not be. <laughs> it's finding out again what's connective with you. Um, or for you. And if you have a family or tradition that says don't speak, I'd invite you to find ways to sort of try and break that cycle um, in a way that can get rid of that culture of shame or fear to create understanding. So yeah, super powerful interview. Yeah. Thanks, Shona. Don't forget, it is okay not to be okay. And if you need someone to talk to, you can text Mikey's line on 07786 20 77 55 or you can contact them via messenger web chat or twitter and the number for whatsapp is 01463 729 you can contact them sunday to thursday 6 p.m to 10 p.m friday to saturday 7 p.m to 7 a.m or you can go and visit them at the hive 19 academy street inverness they're open seven days a week from 6 p.m to 10 p.m Speaking of Suicide is funded by Mikey's Line and the platform is sponsored by Highland-based family firm D&D Paving Limited. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, do get in touch. And if you'd like to share your story, we'd love to hear from you. Speaking of Suicide is produced by Adventurous Audio Limited. Mm-hmm.